Our passage for this morning is from 2 Peter chapter 1. So if you would turn there with me, we'll start by reading the passage. Uh, We're going to discuss in particular verses 3 through 11, but just for context, we'll start from the top and read verses 1 through 11. So let's read 2 Peter 1 through 11 together. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would, uh, you would just bring us with humble, teachable hearts, Lord, that you would be glorified, that we would love you more because of what we learned today. And Lord, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Diligence is not a popular word today. Diligence. Diligence involves hard work. A definition is careful and persistent work and effort. And in a culture that's increasingly about pampering ourselves and only doing what we feel like, effort and work are often seen as unpleasant evils. But you can't really get very far in life without diligence. Consider sports as an example. My children all like to play basketball, but but no matter how naturally gifted you are in basketball, if you don't practice diligently, you're not going to be very good. You have to work hard at shooting, dribbling, conditioning, footwork, hour after hour, day after day, week after week. Or maybe you are artistic, you're interested in painting or playing a musical instrument. Well, again, you're never going to be very good without effort, without diligent practice. But as we finish 2023 and head into the new year, I want to consider the place of diligence in the life of the believer. Does it even have a place? Are we called to work hard to exert our own effort in the Christian life? Some would say no. It's popular in some Christian circles to downplay effort in the Christian life. And such people might say something like this, I must not depend on my own human effort, but completely depend on Christ. I must let go and let God. And maybe that even sounds holy in a way, because we do have to be careful about legalism and depending on ourselves rather than on God. But the problem is that their thinking is not biblical. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, this, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This doesn't sound like passively letting go and letting God, does it? Paul compares our spiritual growth here to athletic training. The word train that he uses speaks of rigorous training and discipline that an athlete would have to go through in order to excel at his or her sport. And in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul writes this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now Paul's taking a a bird's eye view of the whole process of salvation here. From initial salvation to sanctification to glorification. And he's speaking here of the sanctification part. So when he uses the word salvation, he's talking about the sanctification part of our overall uh, salvation. And he says that it's God who works in us. God is the power, but we are to continually work, to pursue godliness, to seek holiness. He is at work in us, but we are clearly called to work. The Christian life requires diligence on our part. In his book, The Practice of Godliness, author Jerry Bridges writes, You and I are responsible to train ourselves. We are dependent upon God for his divine enablement, but we are responsible. We are not passive in this process. Our objective in this process is godliness, God-centered devotion, and God-like character. Training in godliness requires commitment, the teaching ministry of the word, and practice on our part. It's true that at salvation we are counted as righteous in Christ. Positionally, legally, we are declared righteous with his perfect life being counted as ours. But our life thereafter is a matter of sanctification, of growing more like Christ. And we're called to diligence in this lifelong process. The word of God is consistent, whether coming from Paul or, as our passage this morning, coming from Peter. Now, Peter is writing this letter to warn his readers about false teachers rising up in the church. He characterizes these false teachers as those who twist the scriptures, who scoff at the belief that Christ will return, who are greedy and follow their own sensuality, and who entice others by sensual passions of the flesh. Just as it often is today, these false teachers are downplaying the importance of morality in a Christian's life. In fact, it says they're enticing people by appealing to their desires. They were teaching people to pursue secret knowledge rather than godliness. And they taught that if you had this secret knowledge, then you'd risen above a need for morality. So you no longer would have to obey God or worry about living holy lives. Many false teachers today promote antinomianism. Basically, it says that we are saved by grace, which is true. But then they say, because we're saved by grace, we don't have to be worried about how we live. They shrug off efforts to live a godly life as legalism. There's an I'm already saved, so it really doesn't matter how I live kind of attitude. To which Paul writes in Romans 6.15, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. May it never be. And so in 2 Peter 1, 3-11, the Apostle Paul calls us to diligence in our Christian walk. He says that we are to be diligent in pursuing Christlikeness. He calls us to make every effort in our sanctification. And yet, to still depend utterly on Christ and to do it for his glory. Depending on his power, acting for his glory, we make every effort. This morning, we will see three exhortations for living godly lives. Three calls for diligence in our lives so that we will grow spiritually. And the first one is that we must diligently depend on Christ. Verses 3 and 4, diligently depend on Christ. So let's read those verses again. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter's not calling for mere human effort, not for a morality of the will, whereby we we keep our external behavior according to some rules. There are many who can do this. There are people who can live moral lives on their own strength, on self-discipline. Mormons come to mind. Mormons are usually religious, moral people, right? Uh, Even professing atheists can live moral lives. But Peter makes it clear at the outset that this is not what he's talking about. This is not what he's talking about for believers. Because for the Christian, everything has to start with Christ. As one commentator puts it, his power and grace are the foundation for a godly life. So we can organize Peter's thoughts here according to three Ps. First, we depend on Christ's provision. 
for living a godly life. Christ's provision. Looking at verse 3 again, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And in Greek, all comes first. It's put in the front, making it emphatic. He has given us all. He has given us everything required. The ESV says all things that pertain to life and godliness. John Stott suggests that life and godliness can be thought of together as one thing, a godly life. So Peter's talking about our sanctification. He's talking about our spiritual growth. And he's telling us that Christ has given us all that we need in order to live godly lives. Do you feel like God has saved you, but you can't live a godly life? Do you feel like he hasn't given you enough grace and you need something more? Many people go searching for secret knowledge, or they search for an inspirational guru, or some help from secular philosophies, maybe an emotional experience. But Peter says that we already have everything that we need. We don't need to go looking elsewhere. We just need to look more often and more deeply and more regularly and more prayerfully into what we've already been given. John MacArthur explains, God provides us grace to live obediently, to grow, and ultimately to be glorified. He holds us secure and empowers us to persevere through the end, through all temptations, sins, failures, struggles, and trials of life. And what is it that he has given us? We have his divine power working in us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead that is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That power is working within us. That power has granted to us everything that we need. And so if we're tempted to think that it's not enough, we need to remind ourselves of who we're talking about. Is Jesus' power sufficient for us to live godly lives? Of course it is. Now, how did we receive these things? Continuing in verse 3, Peter says, Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, there are two words that are often translated in English in our Bibles as knowledge. There's gnosis and there's epignosis. Gnosis is informational knowledge. It's knowledge in which we can grow. It, It can be knowledge of God's word. It could be knowledge of God's will. It could be knowledge of good books. That's informational knowledge, gnosis. But there's another word, epignosis, which is a deeper, larger, more intimate kind of knowledge. It's a personal knowledge. It's to become fully acquainted with someone or something. And there is some overlap in the meanings, but epignosis is a fuller, truer knowledge, and it's often used in Scripture to talk about knowing Christ. Not knowing about Christ, but personally knowing Christ. That is the term used here by Peter, epignosis, the personal knowledge. The NASB translates it as true knowledge. The Legacy Standard Bible translates it as full knowledge, whereas gnosis is just translated knowledge. Unfortunately, the ESV simply puts knowledge for all of them, so it's a little harder to tell. But take my word for it, Peter here uses the word epignosis, the true, fuller knowledge. So all of this to say that we have received all things pertaining to living a godly life by coming to know Jesus Christ. That's how it happened, right? We come to know him. It says the one who caught us to himself, right? He opened our eyes to his excellence and his glory. So we don't need special secret knowledge, as the false teachers were promoting. We need to know Jesus. When we come to know him, when we repent and believe in him for salvation, then the Holy Spirit indwells us. And as we grow in our knowledge of God through his revelation in his word, we grow in grace as the spirit works in us. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them or grow them in the truth. Your word is truth. So this tells us how we access these resources, how we depend on Christ. It's by diligently seeking him in prayer and in his word. And by disciplining ourselves to have consistent, meaningful time in prayer and the word. Author Donald Whitney says of the disciplines of a faithful believer that the spiritual disciplines are like channels of God's transforming grace. As we place ourselves in them to seek communion with Christ, his grace flows to us and we are changed. But we have a choice in this. 
We can choose to step into those channels to receive his grace, or we can choose not to. We can diligently depend on him, or we can occasionally, only when we feel desperate enough, depend on him. And the choice you make will affect your maturity as your believer, as a believer, and it will affect your intimacy with Christ. So that's Jesus' provision for us, divine power working in us through his word. The second P is Jesus' promises. Look at verse 4. It says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. These were received at salvation as well. In the context of 2 Peter, he certainly has in mind the second coming of Christ. As opposed to the scoffers that he mentions in chapter 3, those who say, where is the promise of his coming? We eagerly anticipate his return. When he will come for his people, when he will set all things right, and he will judge the wicked. But scripture is filled with many precious and very great promises, and we should cling to each and every one of them. Some other promises, we have the promise of eternal life with Christ, the promise of a new body, the promise of no more pain and death and sin, the promise of a new heavens and a new earth, the promise of heavenly rewards, and even in this life, the promise of strength and peace and wisdom, the promise of grace to help in our time of need. So we cling to Christ's promises. And the third P is for purpose, Christ's purpose. The fulfillment of his promises and the work of his power is certain, and it is to accomplish a particular purpose. We continue reading in verse 4. So that, there's the purpose, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, what does it mean to partake or to share or to fellowship in the divine nature? He's talking about the new birth and all that is to follow for the Christian. We are in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit in us. God and Christ make their home with us. We share in God's nature by having eternal life. We will have glorified bodies like Christ and will even share in the moral excellencies of Christ. That's God's purpose for us, not to remain part of a corrupt world. Peter says that we escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Therefore, we must not walk as the world does. It is corrupt because of its sinful desires. That's what unbelievers do. They follow their sinful desires. But God has rescued us from this. And his purpose for us is that we might become holy so we can be with him forever. So first, we must diligently depend on Christ, on his provision of everything we need, on his precious and very great promises, and all with the purpose of us becoming like Christ. And we do so through diligent prayer and study of the word. Now with that in mind, Peter now gives an exhortation or a command in verses 5 to 7. So let's read those verses. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So our second point is that we diligently pursue godly living. Diligently pursue godly living in verses 5 through 7. Peter starts with, for this very reason. He's saying, because of what he has just said, knowing that Christ has given us everything pertaining to godly living, knowing the promises that we have, we are to pursue a godly life. And I want to mention again, it bears repeating, salvation has to come first. We don't live godly lives to earn our way into heaven. That is impossible. That is legalism. First, we come to know Christ, and then out of love and gratitude toward him, out of a desire to glorify and please him, we pursue godliness. We have to have this right. As one commentator writes, Christian faith, which is firmly rooted, must make a radical difference to the way we behave. We will want to please Jesus Christ more rather than presume upon his love. Salvation by grace is not a license to sin. We noted earlier that the false teachers of Peter's day believed that you needed to seek out secret knowledge, and if you found it, you rose above any need for morality. And we see similar ideas today. 
People rise to great positions of influence by claiming new revelation from God, and then they're excused when their lives exhibit the same corruption as the world. The Puritan preacher Walter Marshall wrote, What a strange kind of salvation do they desire that care not for holiness. They would be saved by Christ and yet be out of Christ in a fleshly state. They would have their sins forgiven, not that they may walk with God in love in time to come, but that they may practice their enmity against him without any fear of punishment. The truth is, if you're truly saved, then you love Christ. And if you love Christ, then you will want to please him. He says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For the Christian, you see, there's a heart behind how we live. The heart, the motive, should be our love for Christ. It isn't to look good, it isn't to feel good, and it certainly isn't to earn salvation. It's out of love for our Lord and Savior. Now you'll notice that Peter's command here involves a chain of eight virtues or godly qualities. And we can't go through all of them in great detail, but we'll go briefly through them. Eight qualities. There's some debate about the order here, about whether each virtue follows from the previous one. But the important point is that it begins with faith and it ends with love. And we don't want to get it caught up in the order. We don't want to have this attitude where, well, I'm working on the first one. And we don't need to worry about any of the rest until I've mastered the first one. Because, you know, we're never going to master any of them. We're working on all of them through our whole lives. But we don't want to get caught up in saying, well, I'm focusing on one so I can just ignore the rest. It's not like that. This isn't an all-inclusive list either. We know that because there are other virtue lists in Scripture, and they don't all contain identical virtues. So think of this then as a picture of the fruit of genuine faith with certain virtues highlighted. And they're probably chosen by Peter specifically to counter some of the false teaching that was going around. Now in the ESV, Peter begins with this command, make every effort to supplement your faith. Uh, a more literal translation might be, applying all diligence, add to your faith, or supplement your faith, or supply to your faith. The word supplement or supply or add comes from a word that has its root in theater, musical theater. In ancient times, plays would often need a wealthy benefactor to support it. Uh, in order for the play to happen, somebody had to pay the actors, the musicians, the dancers, and so they would seek a wealthy benefactor who was willing to do that. And that's where this term originates. And it came to be used more generally later for just someone who's a generous giver. Uh, and it really has the emphasis on the generosity of the giver. You could say it's someone who's lavish, gener extremely generous or lavish in their giving. That's the emphasis of this term. So Peter is saying that we must lavishly supplement our faith with goodness while making every effort. Then NASB and Legacy Bibles say applying all diligence. It's to make a strong effort. It's to work diligently. And so the thrust of it is that we are to diligently and lavishly supply goodness to our faith. And diligently and lavishly supply knowledge to our goodness. And so on down the list. So let's look briefly at these virtues, these qualities. Verse 5 says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. So it starts with faith. Okay, that's important. We saw that in the first point. We have to know Christ first. We have to have repented from our sins and turned to him in faith. Otherwise, there's no power working in us, and all of our efforts will be futile. But true faith should produce fruit. And Peter says that in faith, we then diligently pursue goodness or virtue. Uh, other English translations, yeah, they say, they say goodness, they say virtue, moral excellence, this is actually the same term used of Jesus in verse 3 when Peter spoke of his glory and excellence. So it's the excellence, the goodness. We could say the moral excellence is what we're talking about here. Are we pursuing the moral excellence of Christ? That's a question to ask. Are we pursuing the moral excellence of Christ? Are we 
Or are we seeking to get as close to sin as we can without stepping into it? We're reaching over the fence. We're dipping our toe in the water, trying to get as close as we can. Are you trying to get as close as you can to sin without sinning? Or are you trying to get as close to Christ as you can? Are we seeking the moral excellence of Christ? The next virtue is knowledge. If you remember from earlier, epignosis was the personal knowledge, the knowing Christ as your Savior. But this is the other word. This is the word gnosis, the more informational knowledge. And Peter is writing to professing believers. So presumably they know Christ already, right? But they can still grow in their knowledge of him. And that's what he's talking about here. At the end of the epistle, in 2 Peter 3.18, he says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he uses that same word there. Not the epignosis, but gnosis. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. That's the gnosis knowledge. He says that we are to grow in it. We're to diligently and lavishly supply it. Well, how do we grow in knowledge? You already know the answer to this one. We grow by diligently reading, studying, meditating on, praying about, memorizing, and discussing God's word. We learn about him and his will. We learn to discern. We learn to be wise. And it takes effort on our part. But we also know that it is the spirit who works in us. He illumines the scripture to us. He convicts us. He sanctifies us. So our efforts are to allow the word to dwell in us richly, as Paul puts it in Colossians, and to depend on the Holy Spirit for growth. It is to put ourselves in that channel of grace that we might receive it. Next, after knowledge, comes self-control. And this word was used already earlier as well. Um, sorry, wait, let me, I missed something there. Peter wrote about, in verse 4, about the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So he focuses on sinful desire being related to the world. The world follows that, right? In 2 Peter 3.3, he describes false teachers as those who follow their own sinful desires. Apostle John writes in 1 John 2.16 about what's in the world. He says, all that is in the world are the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that it doesn't come from the Father, but from the world. And the world follows its sinful desires but were to have self-control. That word self-control in the Greek has the word power in it. It has the idea of having power over yourself, having the ability to keep yourself in check. And that's an athletic term that was used to talk of athletes who had to be disciplined and self-restrained in their training. Here it means to have self-control or restraint over our emotions, our impulses, and our desires. Now, you might ask, what about non-Christians who seem to have self-control in many ways? There are religious and moral people who exhibit some level of self-control and restraint. What about them? Can we really say that self-control is only a Christian virtue? Well, Paul says this in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Thus, an unbeliever cannot have this kind of self-control. An unbeliever may be able to exhibit some things that resemble some of these fruit, but ultimately they cannot have biblical self-control or any of the other fruit mentioned there. So what do we mean by self-control? As one commentator explains, biblical self-control is to have restraint, to have control over oneself, so that you do not capitulate to sinful desires. You don't give in to sinful desires. So an unbeliever can enforce a certain kind of control under his own will and self-discipline, but ultimately it's going to be to satisfy his sinful desires. Maybe it's not the desire of sexual lust or sloth, but rather it's the boastful pride of life. The unbeliever's reason for denying himself is self-exaltation or pride. It's not to please or glorify God. And furthermore, there's no power working in that person because the person is not a believer. So his heart in it is wrong, no matter what. Next, after self-control comes steadfastness. John MacArthur defines this as patience and endurance in doing what is right. Patience and endurance in doing what is right. 
resisting temptations and enduring in the midst of trials and difficulties. It comes from an awareness of and a trust in God's sovereignty and in his promises. Commentator John Stott defines it as the willingness to put up with tough times because of the promise of better times. And I think that's what Peter has in mind here for sure because he's talking about patience and perseverance as we wait for Christ's return. We see that in the context of the letter. While the world is scoffing, while the world's trying to squeeze every selfish pleasure from this life, we know that there's more than this life. We know that Christ is coming soon to judge the wicked. In his first letter, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 13 to 15, he writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. And toward the end of this letter, the second letter, Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? So having our eyes fixed on the hope and promise of Christ's return should motivate us to live godly lives. After steadfastness is godliness. This word is used earlier in our passage when Peter said his divine power has granted to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. That's the same word here, godliness. Now often we think of godliness as avoiding certain sins or following certain commands, but it's actually to have a heart of proper worship. Godliness means to have an awareness of God in every part of our life, to honor and adore him. You could say that it's true worship. It is a reverence toward him which then guides how we treat others. This is what we must think of when struggling with temptations. Rather than trying not to sin or trying to follow a rule, turn it back to proper worship of God, to glorifying him. That's godliness. Pursue him diligently. It's pursuing him in love and worship. Remember in Genesis when Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph, why does Joseph refuse? What does he say? He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That was his concern, that he would be sinning against God. His desire is to please God. That's what keeps him from sinning. David says in Psalm 51 that sin, his sin is ultimately against God. He took Bathsheba, he murdered her husband, and yet he says his sin is against God. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so we must remind ourselves of God. Remind yourself of Christ's love for you. Remind yourself of what he went through so that you could be cleansed of your sins. And if that is what you are meditating on, then you will not be able to do the sin that you're tempted toward. You will not look at that picture or talk that way or take that thing if you have a practical awareness of God in that moment. So diligently pursue godliness. Next is brotherly affection, from which we get the name Philadelphia. This is a term for love in a family, but the Bible applies it outside the blood family to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Romans 12.10, for example, says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And finally, the last virtue listed is agape love. Self-sacrificial service for the good of another. Commentator John Stott writes, There is an undoubted sense of climax as Peter presents agape as the highest Christian characteristic. It is marked by its indiscriminate and deliberate habit of loving not just brothers, but those outside the family circle too. Nothing could be further from the false teacher's attitude of self-centeredness and exploitation. In 1 Corinthians 12.31, Paul says that this selfless love is a more excellent way to be pursued rather than the higher spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 13.13, he says that love is greater than hope and faith. In Colossians 3.14, he says that love binds the other virtues together, for they must flow out of love or else they are just legalism. And Jesus says in John 13.35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so the chain of virtues culminates, it crescendos with love. 
And Peter says, diligently pursue these virtues. It takes work on our part, right? But aren't you willing to work and to pursue if you love someone or something? The question is, do you love Christ enough to diligently pursue Christ-likeness? So first, we've seen that you must diligently depend on Christ. Then you must diligently pursue godly living. Now we come to the third and final point. We must diligently confirm our calling. Diligently confirm your calling, verses 8 to 11. We'll start at verse 8. It says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says if we possess the chain of qualities just covered and they're, they're increasing in our lives, then we're bearing fruit for Christ. This means we're growing spiritually, right? They might, may not be present to the extent they could be or should be, but they're there and they're growing. We see spiritual growth. But on the other hand, the scary thing is he says in verse 8 that it is possible to be ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. It is possible to be ineffective and unfruitful. If we do not possess those virtues and they're not increasing, we can be ineffective and unfruitful for Christ. Now, ineffective, that is a word that means out of work. It has the idea of being useless or lazy or inoperative. It's the word that James uses when he calls faith apart from works useless in James 2.20. And the term unfruitful sounds like what it says. It's talking about a tree or a plant that's supposed to bear fruit, and yet it produces none. It's unfruitful. Therefore, it's useless. It's worthless. Jesus uses this term in the parable of the sower. The seed that is sown among the thorns is unfruitful, as it is choked out by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. That's a sad waste. A Christian who knows Christ but is proving ineffective and unfruitful for the kingdom. That is Satan's goal for you, if you are a true believer. You see, Satan can't take away your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. But if he can, he will try to get you out of the spiritual battle, onto the sidelines, sitting on the bench, where you're ineffective and unfruitful, where you're focused on you, where you're not a good example, where your life produces little fruit and you're hardly different than the world, where you aren't witnessing for Christ, you're barely getting along, your spiritual life is dry and stagnant. Peter continues in verse 9 to say this, Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Such a person is acting like an unbeliever. That's what he's saying. He's acting like an unbeliever. He's repeating his old sins as, as if he has forgotten that Christ cleansed him from them. He's blind, unable to have assurance of his salvation, unable to see, because the evidence, the presence of fruit and their increase is not there. And thus Peter makes another exhortation. He says in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In light of this danger, Peter speaks again of diligence. Be diligent to make sure you have been elected and called. Be diligent to make sure you're actually saved, is what he's saying. Be sure that you truly know Christ, not that you know about Christ. If you practice these qualities, these virtues that Peter has listed, and they're increasing in you, he says you will never fall. That's not a promise that you will never sin, but it's a promise that you will not fall away from the Lord. You are continually growing in him, so you will never forsake him. And thus you can be assured that the entrance to the kingdom will be provided to you. You are Christ's and you will be with him. But if not, if you lack these qualities and they are not increasing in you, then be diligent to make sure about your salvation. Don't hold on to a prayer you prayed long ago or a profession you made once upon a time. If there has been no change in your life, no fruit for Christ, what evidence is there of your calling and election? Are you sure it's genuine? 
This is the most important question there is. Are you truly in Christ? It's not just knowing about him. We must know him personally. The reformers used to say that there are three essential components of genuine saving faith. The first component they called notitia. It was mental knowledge. It's knowing the facts of the gospel. Do you know those facts? Do you know that all people are sinners who deserve God's wrath and can do nothing to save themselves? Do you know that he sent his only son into this world as a man to live the perfect life that none of us could live? And he suffered and died in the place of sinners and rose again on the third day, defeating sin and death once for all, so that we could be saved if we repent and believe in him for salvation. Do you know that? Well, that's, you could say that's about Jesus. That's the gospel. Do you know the facts of the gospel? That's only the first part. That's what they called notitia. Then the reformers talked about a census. A census is the mental belief. So not only do you know the facts of the gospel, you have to go farther. You have to actually believe that it's true. Right? Doesn't you, if you just know the claims of the gospel, would you actually believe the gospel's true? Do you affirm it to be true? And even that's not enough. Because Satan and the demons know the gospel and know it's true. And they hate Jesus. I always think of this video I watched once of evangelist Ray Comfort speaking to an unbeliever. And he was talking and reasoning with him for a while. And then at some point he stopped and he said something like this. If I were to be able to convince you that God exists and that the gospel is true, would you worship God? And what do you think the guy said? He said, no, I would not. You see, knowing and believing the facts still doesn't make you a Christian. There's a third component, and this is what the reformers called fiducia. It was commitment to Christ. It's repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ alone for salvation. All three components must be present for genuine saving faith. It's not just knowing about Jesus. It's not even just believing that those facts are true. That's where I was for probably the first 25 years of my life. I thought I was a Christian. I always believed in God as far as I remember. I knew the gospel and believed the gospel was true as far as I can ever remember. And yet, looking back, I was living for myself. I was not committed to Christ. I didn't love him and I wasn't following him. I loved myself and I was following myself and my desires. And so we have to make sure that our faith is real. Diligently confirm your calling, Peter says. That's our third point. So in conclusion, diligence is not popular today because it involves hard work. But it is essential to maturing in anything, including living as a Christian. In his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, Jerry Bridges writes, No one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his life. But just as surely... No one will attain it without effort on his own part. God has made it possible for us to walk in holiness, but he has given to us the responsibility of doing the walking. He does not do that for us. And so as we look toward the new year, Peter has called us to apply all diligence in our walks, to diligently depend on Christ, to diligently pursue godly living, and to diligently confirm your calling. For many of us, we work diligently for money. We work diligently for our education. We work diligently for sports and hobbies. The question is, are you working diligently for Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your grace and mercy. And we thank you, Lord, for sending your Son that we might be saved if we would repent and believe in him. And Lord, uh, may we understanding that truth, love our Savior and Lord, and live to serve him. May we therefore seek to live godly lives, not out of any attempt to earn praise or to earn salvation, which is impossible, but Lord, that we would do it just because we love him, because we want to glorify him and please him. Lord, we ask that you would do that work in our hearts, that we would all have that attitude, all have that heart for Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to the uh, time for the Lord's table. It is Christ and his work on our behalf that we remember and we proclaim during this time. And I do want to remind you that the Lord's table is for all believers. It's for the whole church.
It's for anyone who has repented of his or her sins and trusted in Christ for salvation. And so if you're a visitor here uh, and, and you're in Christ, we would encourage you to participate with us, to partake. But if not, we would ask that you would please withhold. Now, as the men come forward to distribute the elements, let us, let us take a, a moment in private to examine our hearts, to meditate on what the Lord has done, going in our place, taking upon himself our punishment so that we could be forgiven and God's justice could be satisfied.
In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul writes, starting in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Continuing in verse 25, Paul writes, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you never change. You exist in yourself, never needing anyone or anything. And yet you have created us, Lord, and despite our sinfulness, you have given us life. And not only that, but eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you for sending him. We thank you for the perfect life that he lived as a man that we could never live. We thank you for, for him going to the cross and taking the punishment that we deserve. We thank you, Lord, that he rose again on the third day so that we could be saved, so that we could be forgiven, we could be reconciled to you if we would but repent and believe trusting in him alone for salvation. May we remember each and every day what you have done for us. May we live with that ever on our hearts. And may our love for you cause us to diligently pursue godly lives. We pray these things in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.